0: It's midnight after a long day at the office and you're just finishing up your last batch of work. You have an early meeting tomorrow. You're exhausted and ready for bed. So you start to gather up your things. And then you feel a buzz on your wrist. It's your Strive Pedometer, a gadget that not only counts your steps but also sends you extra challenges. If you complete them, you win points in the Pedometer's virtual world. And now you have an opportunity. If you climb 20 steps, you get triple points. You think, I can just take the flight of stairs down to the basement and back upstairs and I'll be done and then I'll go to bed. So off you go. But just as you're about to finish, you can get another big bonus if you do just 40 more. Fast forward to 2 a.m. You've been going up and down the basement steps for two hours. It's like the Strive knows you're ready for bed. Every time you're on your last few steps, it pushes another offer you can't refuse. 20 steps. 40 steps. This actually happened to Zoe Chance. She kept going because a little device on her wrist told her to. And Zoe, of all people, should have known better. She's a professor at the Yale School of Management, specifically an expert on how people are manipulated into doing things that go against all common sense. Zoe originally bought the pedometer to show it to students in a class she teaches called Mastering, Influence, and Persuasion. Still, she just climbed the height of the Empire State Building in the middle of the night for the sake of some meaningless virtual rewards. How did a highly accomplished professor who literally teaches this stuff for a living get sucked in? Zoe Chance was distractible, and the technology was right there to distract her. In fact, its makers built it with exactly that goal in mind. Was it her fault that it worked? Silicon Valley entrepreneurs have lots of ways to drive us to distraction. Author Nir Eyal taught them some of their most powerful tricks in his influential bestseller, Hooked, back in 2014. Now he's got a new book out meant to teach the rest of us how to be indistractable.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From
0: Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club along with authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, distraction and how to beat it. So. Is technology distracting us? That's what the headlines tell us. The topic of tech addiction is grabbing the attention of parents, teachers, and even tech giants. Serious concerns continue to circle the tech industry about being addicted to your smartphone or being absorbed by social media. In response, device makers have started giving us built-in apps that track our screen time and health apps that, ironically, encourage us to disconnect. But author Nir Eyal thinks these technical solutions are red herrings. Near teaches at Stanford about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. In 2014, he published the bestseller, Hooked, how to build habit-forming products. It fast became the go-to book for Silicon Valley product designers intent on pulling our strings. Go into any tech entrepreneur's office, and there's a good chance you'll find it on the shelf. Now he's written another book called Indistractable, how to control your attention and choose your life. It looks at why we're so vulnerable to distraction in the first place and how we can fight back. And not against the technology necessarily, but against our very nature. So Nir, your best-selling book, Hooked, helped teach people to build products and how to make those products addictive. Now with Indistractable, you're arming everyday people with the knowledge of how to fight back how to resist the same hooks that you were helping people build. Have you switched sides? <laughs> so this is, this is usually the first question.
2: Uh, I'll start by saying that wisdom is often found in the contradictions. That being said, there's no dichotomy here because uh, you can – help people form healthy habits. And that really was the goal with Hooked, right? Uh, It it was not about addiction. I actually, you know, my publisher originally wanted me to make the subtitle, How to Build Addictive Products, and I didn't. It's called How to Build Habit-Forming Products for a very specific reason. Uh, So we would never want to create an actually addictive product. so, so no, there's no dichotomy here, right? I can help people build habit-forming products for good, and that's exactly what's happened in the five years since Hooked was published. It's been amazing seeing how many products are using the Hooked model for, for great purposes. Companies like Kahoot, it's the world's largest educational software. Fitbod, it's a fitness uh, app that helps people form a habit of exercising in the gym. I mean, the list goes on and on. But also, you know, look, I'm an insider who loves technology. And I think, yeah. you know, I only write a book when I can't find that book on the market. So whenever I have a problem in life, I go read, 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 and nine times out of 10, somebody's already written the book that solves the problem. And then every once in a while, you know, the cadence has been about once every five years, I'll find a problem that nobody has answered to my satisfaction. And that's what happened with Hooked. I didn't find a book on how to build habit-forming products. And with Indistractable, same story. I read dozens of books on this topic, and they all said the same thing. Uh, Get rid of the distraction. Yeah. And when I explored, you know, first of all, I tried that stuff. Yeah. Right. I try, you know, they all say the same thing. Get a 30 day plan, a digital detox. I tried all of it. Yeah. Doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is for the same reason fad diets don't work. So I used to be clinically obese and I'd go on these fad wow. diets. Right. I like no fast food for 30 days. Yeah. Well, guess what happened on day 31? <laughs> like I'd make up for lost time. And that's what always happens with fad diets, because we right. don't get to the root cause of the problem. Yep. You know, the, the, the big question of the book is, why do we do things against our better interests? Distraction. You know, it, I think the, the, the question of the day is, what do we do about these tech distractions, But let's go deeper,? Right? Yep. Why do we get distracted? Let's go deeper. Yep. Let's go even first principles. Why do we do anything? Right, sure. Turns out the nature of motivation is not what most people conceive it to be, not what I conceived it to be. I thought, you know, carrot and stick, uh, pain and pleasure, Freud's pleasure principle, that everything we do is motivated by the desire to seek pleasure and avoid pain.
0: Yeah.
2: Ain't true. Turns out that neurologically speaking, it's not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It's pain all the way down. That neurologically speaking, the only reason we do anything is for the avoidance of discomfort. It's called the homeostatic response. Physically, this is easy to understand, right? If we are, um, uh, if we go outside and it's cold, we put on a jacket. If it's hot, we take it off. Uh, if we're hungry, we feel hunger pangs, we eat. And then when we're full, oh, we're stuffed, that doesn't feel good, we stop eating. So those are how disc- uh, how uncomfortable sensations change our, our behaviors through physiological discomfort. The same rules apply to psychological discomfort. So this comes straight out of of what I wrote about and Hooked around internal triggers. When we are uh, lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check stock prices, or the news, or sports scores, or YouTube, or Reddit. I mean, the list goes on
0: and on. Because we feel emotional discomfort. You know, one of the biggest surprises for me in reading the book is how profound it is on the topic of the human condition. Mm. Uh, It's not merely a tactical book about how to get more done in the office you're really tackling some of the big, big human questions. You open by saying, first, accept that that you and I are wired to be discontent. Mm -hmm. None of us will ever be happily ever after, as the storybooks say. We need to recalibrate our expectations. Are you saying we need to lower our standards or reframe how we think about joy? We need to accept the fact that dissatisfaction is
2: normal. I think the personal development industry sells us this myth that if we're not happy, we're not normal. And the fact is nothing could be farther from the truth that we are designed for disquietude. I mean, what helped our species survive is perpetually wanting more. And we need to accept that fact. Now you can go two ways. So this, and I talk about in the book these these different psychological quirks that served us on the Serengeti, but today can often backfire, like uh, hedonic adaptation and negativity bias. Yep. You know, there's a yep. few there's a few things that make us this way. Sure. But if we don't acknowledge the fact that this is part of our DNA, what happens is people bifurcate into two buckets. They either become blamers or shamers. Hmm. The blamers, they say. Oh, it's this distraction doing it to me, right? It's yep. it's the bottle that's making yep. me an alcoholic. It's the tech companies that are making me a tech addict. Those yep. are the blamers. Sure. Then you get the shamers. The shamers are the one who say, there's something wrong with me. Yep. I have poor attention span. I have an addictive personality. Now, asterisks. some people do have a pathology, for sure. Yep. Single-digit percentages of the population really do have a pathology. But for the vast majority of us, neither of those answers are correct. It's not the blamers. It's not the shamers. These are
0: behaviors. And if we know how to change these behaviors, we can do something about it. Near says distraction has a related but opposite behavior that's useful to us. It's called traction.
2: Actions that you take that move you towards what you want in life. Things that you do with intent. Traction. The opposite of traction is distraction. Both words end in the same ending, they both end in action, and they both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. So traction are actions that we take that move us towards what we want in life. Distraction is anything we do that moves us away from what we want in
0: life. So when people are, are beginning to feel the urge to pick up the phone, mm-hmm. or engage in whatever the distraction is, what's the first step to resisting that? What, what, what's your recommendation of how, yeah. how somebody begins in that moment? So there's, there's two things when it comes to these internal triggers. First, we need to
2: recognize that it is completely normal, right? That, that feeling bad, uh, feeling discomfort is part of the human condition. And is part, you know, suffering is part of life. And so we, we need to stop blaming ourselves or shaming ourselves that there's something wrong with us if we, if we feel uh, discomfort. Particularly in this age, I think it was Kierkegaard who said that uh, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, I love that quote because in this age where we have so many options, right? We will yep. never read all the stories of the day. We will never watch all the YouTube videos. We will never catch up on our tweets. It, there's too much freedom. There's too much choice. And so much yeah. of it is interesting, yeah. right? And so we, that's not our fault, but it is our responsibility. And so there's two things we can do when it comes to mastering these uncomfortable emotional sensations. The first thing that we can do, if we can do it, is to fix the source of the discomfort. If we can fix what's causing the pain, we should.
0: Near thinks we're blaming the wrong thing for our distractibility. It's not the tech, it's us. Maybe it's a bad relationship or bad politics at the office. Once we accept that, he says, we need to learn to deal with the discomfort that this brings up. And he gives us three ways. We can reimagine the trigger,
2: we can reimagine the task, and we can reimagine our temperament. And this was the part that I actually found most helpful. This temperament piece, you know, so many of us label ourselves with these self-defeating um, self-images, right? The, the, one of the the myths that I I really wanted to to squash in the in the book was this myth of ego depletion, yeah. Um, which you know I learned about years ago, and it turns out there was a lot of research around this idea that your uh, willpower depletes, right? That willpower is like a gas tank, and that eventually we run out of it, and so. I told myself this myth that this was part of my temperament, that I had run out of willpower. And so every night I'd come home and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm spent. Oh, I just, I deserve to relax. And I'd go on the couch and watch Netflix and, you know, enjoy a pint of Ben & Jerry's. Until I realized that ego depletion is a myth. <laughs> that yeah. It doesn't exist. Right. That in fact, it, the, these studies that showed that ego depletion depletes like gas in a gas tank can't be replicated, except for... One group of people who actually do experience ego depletion, who actually do behave like willpower is a depleting resource. Those people are people who believe in ego depletion. (laughs) Even if they don't call it, they don't know the term for it. If you believe, if you're the kind of person who believes, oh, I'm spent, therefore I can give in to temptation, then you did act according to that belief. Which is fascinating, right? So this goes back to why we shouldn't give into this narrative that you know tech is hijacking our brains, addictive. It's actually a harmful way to think because it makes it true.
0: Yeah, it's a mindset. Or it's reminiscent of like Carol Dweck's gro- growth mindset. Like, so Carol Dweck the did way the research. You, okay, perfect. exactly. Yeah. She
2: did the research that showed the only people who are affected by ego depletion are the ones who believe it to be true. Yeah. So uh, uh, Michael Inslich actually says that willpower is not a depletable resource; it's an emotion. So just like we wouldn't say, "Oh, I was having a great time at that party, and then I ran out of happy." That doesn't make any sense. Or I was really mad at you and then I ran out of sad. That doesn't make any sense. We don't run out of willpower. It's an emotion, and emotions crest and subside. So, if we learn these tactics for dealing with those emotions, we can ride them out. We can do what psychologists call surfing the urge until they pass.
0: So, this is very helpful for me because I'm currently suffering from a uh, maybe addiction is not the right word, but a um, a strong habit uh, with the with the game on my iPhone, SimCity. Let the record show. I originally played the game just to try to experience what my children were going through yeah. as an act of empathy and and kind of connect with my kids, uh, and I found myself, you know, just completely sucked into SimCity. I'm on level <laughs> they 34. <got> you. <laughs> uh, surfing the urge struck me as a good solution, right? The, the, the idea is that you should, in the, in the moment of feeling the pull to build your city, you should just focus on what that feels like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And, and, and maybe, and what else? Yeah, so I,
2: I applaud you first of all for for playing these games. You know, many parents I talk to talk about how terrible their kid. And there's a whole chapter in the book about how to raise indestructible kids, and they tell me how terrible these technologies, whether it's Fortnite or SimCity sure. or you know Minecraft yeah. or whatever. I have might no be. idea what the
0: game is, and they've so. never
2: played it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's great that you're you're seeing you know what this game is about. And it's it's not that bad, but but. If you don't have the skills to become indistractable, no doubt they will get you. I mean, these companies understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. So it is imperative that we understand what they're doing and take measures to make sure we can put it in its place. Sure, It's about first asking yourselves, what, yourself, when do I give into this, right? Uh, you know, What is the emotional... Uh, Trigger that I am looking to escape? Is it stress, anxiety,
0: fatigue, loneliness? What is it doing that, what what is it, uh, when I use this, what am I trying to escape? After a while, he says, you'll start to recognize your internal triggers. That's the first step towards becoming indistractable. But we're also bombarded by external triggers that can tempt us into distraction. Not just notifications and buzzing devices and incoming texts and emails, but also the responsibilities we have to our families, our friends, and our work. And those may be the hardest to balance.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days. All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan... TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promisespayoff.
0: Remember Zoe Chance? she's the professor who spent two hours climbing up and down her basement steps for a few points on her pedometer app. Nir Eyal writes about her in his book Indistractable. It wasn't just the pedometer, right? Because you, you, we all have,
2: you know, at this point, we've all tried a pedometer. How many of us have gotten unhealthfully hooked to a pedometer? Many of us wish we would get hooked to a pedometer, but most people don't, you know, use the pedometer to climb as many stairs it takes to get to the top of the Empire State Building. Why did she go so beyond what most people do. Turns out, she had other stuff going on in her life. She was going through a very painful divorce. She was uncertain about her job prospects because she was looking to get a full-time professorship and she wasn't sure where she was going to go. Her husband was also a professor, also looking for a placement. So this was, you know, this cascade of
0: different issues and problems that she was looking to escape. And the Strive gave her just what she needed, something she could control in the midst of all that chaos. It wasn't the technology's fault. It was Zoe's very human nature. I don't
2: subscribe to this narrative that I think many tech critics are are espousing these days, that technology is hijacking your brain, that it's addictive, that there's nothing you can do about it. In fact, I hate that narrative because it is so disempowering. In fact, there's this phenomenon of learned helplessness, that when we tell people— that there's nothing you can do, that it's hijacking your brain, that you're addicted, they believe it, and they start acting accordingly. We don't need this stuff despite the fact that we might want it. It's really And so I'm not telling people to stop using it altogether. I'm, te- I'm teaching people ways to manage that discomfort in a more healthful manner. That's because some external triggers are actually good for us external triggers are things in our environment the pings dings rings and things that prompt us to either do something that is traction something we plan to do like for example if you uh, get a notification on your phone and says hey it's time for that meeting time to work out time to do what it is you plan to do great that's traction if you get a notification on your phone that's uh, you know s- somebody interrupting you in the middle of dinner with your family or in the middle of a meeting or whatever it might be and that's something you didn't plan to do well now it's a distraction. So there's no, there's no moral judgment here that, oh, these type of triggers sure. are good. These are bad. It's about which ones are yeah. serving you. I don't care what you do. What I care is that what you do is what you do with intent. The, 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 the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So what I did in my life, for example, I took something that was a distraction, uh, checking social media or checking email all the time, and I turned it into traction. How did I do that? I planned time for it, right? It was as simple as that. So you talk about time boxing. Mm-hmm. How does that work? A time box calendar is when we account for every minute of our day. Mm-hmm. Now I know some people are like, "Oh, that's too rigid. I can't do that. You know, I need time for sp- spontaneity. I need time to do the things I want to do." Yes, put that on your calendar too. My Saturdays and Sundays have huge blocks, 4-hour blocks of nothing, <laughs> right? Like I want to do anything but work. That's fine. You can have time to meditate. You can have time to pray. You can have time to do nothing, time for a nap. Whatever it is that's consistent with your values should be on that calendar. So the first step is to start with your values. Values are attributes of the person we want to become. And so many of us, like I used to do, I talked a good game about my values. If you said, okay, what's important to you, Nir? Well, my health is very important to me. My family is very important to me. My relationships are very important to me but if you looked at my calendar you wouldn't see any of that today i've turned my values into time and so what that requires is to look at these three life domains things you do for yourself things you do time the way you spend your time with your relationships and the way you spend your time at work and these are kind of concentric circles so we have to take care of ourselves if
0: we're going to be Uh, our best in our relationships and our best in the workplace. And this this is kind of like the airplane notice. First, put the oxygen mask on yourself, then on your child. That's right. You've got to take care of yourself first.
2: And most people start that exactly in reverse, as I used to do, right? First, I do work. (laughs) And then uh, I I learned this great term uh, in college called residual benefactor. I love this. A residual benefactor is the chump who gets whatever's left over when a company goes bankrupt. And my, so my wife was an economics major, and we took an econ class in college together. And I remember uh, after we graduated, I was working at the Boston Consulting Group. You know, work came first above everything else. And she said, "Near, stop making me a residual benefactor. Stop making me the chump that gets whatever pittance of time is left over in your calendar. If I'm valuable to you, put time in your schedule for us. And so that has been a, a very, very important lesson of actually making time uh,
0: for my values in those three domains. And I, th- I think this is a great, a great observation because we think of just your calendar is your calendar. It's just sort of you know dentist appointments, meetings. Mm-hmm. But I think this insight that how we spend our time is really the sum totality in the end of who we are. Right. These little choices that cumulatively add up to very large choices about how you, who and what you prioritize in your life. Are, are very profound, really. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it sounds just like calendaring, but this is, this is deep This is deep stuff. So I think there's kind of three levels here. So where most people are is they don't even keep a
2: calendar. They just let other people tell them what to do with their time every day. And of course, if you don't plan your day, somebody else will. It's your boss, it's your kids, it's your spouse, it's the news, it's Twitter. Somebody's gonna eat up that time if you don't plan it for yourself. So the first the first step is to keep this calendar. Some folks will even keep a to-do list what I used to do is keep a to-do list without keeping a calendar. That is – I see a lot of professionals making this mistake. I call this mm-hmm. the myth of the to-do list, that productivity geniuses have told us if you just put things on a to-do list, they'll magically get done, and that is just not true. <laughs> the reason sure. it's not true is because you are planning the output, not the input. Right? If, if, if I said to you, uh, Rufus, next year we need a million new members of the Next Big Idea Club. Okay, great, do it. That's output. Your first question would be to, be to ask me, okay, how do I do that? What are the inputs that are necessary? How many employees do we need? How do we acquire customers? Do we need to raise capital? All these inputs. How do we do that? <laughs> we'll get onto that after the episode. Right? So, so that's what we do every day. We say, here's my list of outputs. I need to do task A, B, C, D, whatever. But you know what happens, right? Day after day, we take those last few things on our to-do list and they go from today to the next day to the next day and they never get done because we didn't make time for them on our calendar. The only input you control is your time. So it has to have a
0: place on your calendar if it has a place on your to-do list. I think I think the phrase time boxing is going to be one of the things that sticks with me uh, after having read this book. <clears throat> I think I think partly because I associate it a little bit with kickboxing, mm. like I'm fighting to protect <laughs> my time. and well, my it's schedule, indistractable, indestructible, right? That's right, the idea. Right, <laughs> very good. You know, it's a great, it's a great phrase. Up uh, up there with residual beneficiaries. <laughs> um, in relationships, you seem to place a high value on routine and ritual. Mm. Um, can you share some of the rituals you've established with your family and friends?
2: Yeah, so this is an area that's really uh, important, I think, from a national perspective. I think we we are witnessing right now is a connection crisis, this crisis of loneliness in this country. And we're, we're seeing this, you know, psychologists tell us that, uh, that loneliness is as detrimental to our health as smoking and obesity. Uh, it is a real national problem. I think what we've seen over the last few decades is with the decline of civic organizations, uh, with the decline mm-hmm. of attendance of, of uh, uh, religious groups, we've seen a rise in this disconnection. Uh, and, I, you know, uh, uh, Johan Harari said it really well in his book Lost Connections. He said the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection and i think that's yeah. a big reason why yeah. we see this spike in addiction today is yeah. that we don't have the support systems remember as i mentioned you know if all behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort if the way people used to escape discomfort was by going to their church, by finding a friend, by sitting with someone who cares about yep. them. And those we are
0: going bowling in the case of the bowling exactly, alone. Exactly, bowling alone,
2: book, right. Yep. Those, these, these civic organizations that have, have disintegrated, unfortunately, well before Facebook, by the way. And then Robert yep. Putnam wrote that sure. decades before Facebook. So the problem has been a long time simmering. Um, the, so the, the antidote to that is, again, forethought. We can take steps today to make sure that we are fed uh, psychologically, if we know we need relationships in our lives to maintain psychological well-being and physical well-being, it turns out, we need to plan ahead. So uh, a tradition that, that we have in, in my household is that we, we instituted what we call the kibbutz. And the kibbutz, we couldn't think of a better word. It, it means gathering in Hebrew. And the idea there's no, nothing religious about it. The idea is that we have four families. Uh, everyone has kids that we get together every two weeks. It's on the calendar. Right, forever and ever, it's on the calendar,
0: and you have to take it off for it not to be on the calendar. That, that strikes me as yes. an important thing. Yes, yes, it's, it's the it's,
2: default. Same time, same place. It's it, all the details are set. There's no planning that's required. Everybody brings their own food. Nobody has to cook. You, you just, you know, it, it, you know, it's very predictable. So there's no work. There's no effort to having to plan. And the idea is that we all come together. Uh, we we go around robin around. You know, it's one person's turn for the eight adults that are involved to talk about whatever's on their mind. So one week, it'll be a, kind of like a TED-style question of, should we get our kids to do something that they don't want to do, like practice piano? Okay, that's a topic of conversation. Or I'm really struggling at work. Uh, what do I do? Okay, that's a topic of conversation. So that regularity, it's on the
0: calendar. Nier says, after time boxing time for yourself and time for relationships, it's time to time box your work. That means calendaring chunks of time for meetings, phone calls, emails, and regular catch-up sessions. Most importantly, we need to schedule time to think. You know, I always ask people, do you need focus in your job? Do you need time to reflect
2: as opposed to constantly reacting to every ping and ding and meeting and email? Everybody tells me, absolutely, right? If you're a knowledge worker today, you need time to think. The only way you can generate novel solutions to hard problems is to think. But where is that time in our calendars? We don't get that time unless we schedule it, right? We have to make time for traction and hack back the external triggers that may pull us away. One setting that we don't talk about enough is the physical workspace. Mm -hmm. And what a huge problem uh, open floor plan offices Mm. can be to focus. Uh, Because, you know, as many of us know, one of the most pernicious forms of distraction is when you're sitting down at your desk and you just want to finish that project and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Rufus, uh, I just want to talk to you real quick. Can I talk to you?
0: And it's not really their fault because they don't know what you're working on. I love the story of Becky Richards, mm. who came up with the solution for errors in giving patients medication. Yeah, The astounding thing about this is the scale of this problem. 400,000 Americans are harmed every year as a result of being given the wrong medication. Right. It costs the nation $3.5 billion in extra medical expenses, all because of the challenges we have wrestling with distraction. Can you tell us about the problem and the solution that, that Becky came up with?
2: Most hospitals in America just, oh, it's a fact of life, what can we do about it? But it's a completely preventable problem. It's mm. 100% human error. So uh, the, 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 while most hospitals just accept it as a fact of life, there was uh, one group of nurses at UCSF who decided to tackle this problem. They wanted to really dive into why were there such a, you know, such a high rate of, of patients being harmed? As you mentioned, 400,000 Americans are harmed every Stounding. year from this, yeah. right? So they did They did some research into this and they found the reason that prescription mistakes were happening was because nurses on their medication rounds were being interrupted, hmm. right? Doctors, other patients, nurses were interrupting them while they were dosing out medication and they were making mistakes. In the exact same way that when we are interrupted as knowledge workers, when our flow is interrupted, when we're doing focused work and someone taps us on the shoulder or we receive a a notification on our phone or on our laptop, we also don't do our best work. We also make mistakes. And the solution blew me away. So what Becky Richards came up with was not some multi-million dollar app. It wasn't some extensive training program. It was cheap plastic vests. These... You know, plastic vests that say medication rounds in progress that the nurses would put on to tell other people, don't bother me right now. I am doing medication rounds. I need
0: to concentrate. That simple hack resulted in an 88% reduction in medication errors. Near has adapted the vest solution for offices. He says we should put a big red flag on our desks that says, I'm busy, come back later. Your colleagues will keep their distance when the flag is up. They'll know they can come ask a question when the flag is down. Now, this is great if you work in the kind of place that gives you some control over your time. But a lot of us aren't so lucky.
2: From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR
0: leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Work, and your boss has given you a project. You've been told it's a big project and you need to do your best. But there's a problem. Your boss won't stop sending you emails at all times of day and night with other things you need to do. Things your boss's boss needs done. So you don't have time to do the things you need to do because you're too busy putting out other people's fires. You're in a classic bind. The expectations are high, but you can't control your time. Nir Eyal says that's an awful combination. So if you have one or the other, that's okay. But if you have both high expectations and
2: low control, that's a recipe for disaster. That's where people feel this undue amount of anxiety and and, uh, uh, depression disorder. And so the solution to that is giving people greater agency and control
0: to to rebalance that, that lack of control they feel. I love this idea that at the heart of it, is just these these core psychological needs people have that actually Dan Pink, the next big Idea Club curator, wrote about very famously in Drive, right, right. about about autonomy, purpose, and control—the ability to um, to feel like you can influence the outcome of your of your of your work situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I rely upon that heavily. So he he wrote
2: about uh, uh, self determination theory. Uh Desi and Ryan are the ones who did this research back in the 1970s. And this is the most widely understood notion of human motivation and psychological well-being that all of us require. Uh, Desi and Ryan called it competency, autonomy, and relatedness. Uh, those are these three factors that we need. And whenever those are uh, impinged, when we don't have enough of those three things, it's, this is called the needs displacement hypothesis. We look for them somewhere else. So if you really wanna know why kids are overusing technology today, the real source of the problem it ain't the technology. We have to get to the root heart of the issue, which is that kids today are not getting enough of competency, autonomy, and relatedness.
0: Yeah, I, f- I found this section fascinating. Apparently, since, since the mid-1950s, the time that kids have for spontaneous play amongst themselves in the neighborhood or you know, physical, interpersonal play has been gradually receding.
2: Yeah, so this is the area of the book that uh, I think is the most controversial and I feel most strongly about. Mm. Uh, I'm the father of a 10-year-old little girl. Uh, we struggled with figuring out how to uh, use technology in a healthful manner in our house. I mean, my, some of my daughter's first words were, iPad time, iPad time. So I understand this problem very, very well. The, the, the trouble is, is that I, like many parents, jump to the surface level conclusion. Uh, My kid is overusing technology. Technology is the problem. And that is so not true. What's going on is that we have stripped kids of what they need to flourish psychologically. And so where are they going? They're going online, right? There's... um uh, some fascinating research around how many rules are inflicted on our kids every day. Twice as many rules as an adult, twice as many rules as a convicted felon. <laughs> this is extraordinary. <laughs> I can't wait to read this to my kids, actually. Yeah. They're, oh, they're going to They're going to love, they're they're gonna clap. Gonna love this <laughs> yeah. And so when you have no autonomy, what do you do? You look
0: for it somewhere. Well, if when you play Fortnite, you're the god, right? You control yep. this environment. Yep. You have tons of autonomy. Yep. It's interesting to see here the correlations between – what you're describing about optimal conditions in the workplace and what are optimal conditions for kids—it's not that but different. Saying, right? <laughs> high expectations, low control environments produce stress. Competency, autonomy, and relatedness um, are fundamentally what we all want, whether we're, you know, ten or, or or forty-five. And this comes back to this idea of internal triggers. It's
2: about giving them the autonomy to feel in control. So, involving your child uh, in fixing this problem together will go much, much farther than saying, I'm the parent, here I'm imposing the rules, because all that does is spur reactance, where the child is going to be even more rebellious and create this forbidden fruit around technology, as opposed to saying, hey, you know, the cost of technology is the opportunity cost of not doing something else, right? So it's not that technology is melting her brain, that Fortnite is evil. There is zero data that says two hours or less of uh, extracurricular uh, screen time is harmful. Zero evidence. It's all, the harmful effects only come from four or five, six hours a day type use. So there's nothing wrong with two hours or less of extracurricular screen time. However, the cost of that screen time is what else they could be doing, right? It's time playing with your friends, it's uh, time with your mommy and daddy, it's time consuming other forms of media.
0: What do you think is a reasonable amount of time? And let's put that in your schedule, right? Which sometimes means thinking about what we want way in advance of when we want it. Near calls that pre-commitment.
2: We do this in many aspects of our life, right? If we think about a um, an advanced healthcare directive. Uh, where we say, look, in the case that I'm incapacitated, if I'm in the hospital, here's, what, here's the directive. Here's what I want you to do. I'm telling you in advance what I want to happen. Uh, a, a retirement savings account, where we have very high penalties if we take the money before retirement. That's a pre-commitment device. Even uh, a wedding ritual, announcing to your your family and your friends that you are making a commitment to your life partner, that is a form of a pre-commitment as well. It I've, makes done, it I've done the wedding one. I haven't done the other two. That's a reminder. <laughs> I should get on that. Exactly. We're going to change that. So there are three types of pre-commitment. We can make an effort pact, a price pact, or an identity pact. An effort pact just imposes a bit of effort to doing the thing we don't want to do. So I give a few examples in the book. Um, One of them is is this uh, outlet timer that I use at home that every night at 10 p.m. turns off my internet router. So every night at 10 p.m. my internet shuts off. Now, I could go disable that and unplug and replug and all that stuff to get my internet back on. But that bit of effort gives me a moment to be mindful as opposed to being mindless around this behavior. So that's a bit of effort, it's an effort pact. Uh, a price pact is where we put some kind of uh, of monetary cost it's actually been shown to be the most effective way to, f- to help people quit smoking is having a bit of their own money there are a bit of skin in the game to doing uh, to not doing something they don't want to do this is uh, I use this every day in a few different manners yeah so I used to be clinically obese and I've always hated exercising hated it I never you know I'd have friends who would do marathons and they'd tell me about the runners high I have no clue what they're talking about exercise was always miserable to me But the evidence is is pretty strong that we should be doing some type of physical exercise every day I knew what I wanted to do Uh, I I figured out ways to master the internal triggers there I put time on my calendar to make sure I did what I say I'm going to do I removed the external triggers that would possibly distract me from exercising every day But I needed one more step I I needed this this pre-commitment device to help me make sure I did what I said I'm going to do And here's what I did I used what I call the burn or burn technique In my closet, where I get dressed every morning, I have a calendar. And on that calendar, to the day's date, is taped a crisp $100 bill. Now, every day, I have a choice to make. I can either burn the $100 bill. There's a lighter right above the the, the calendar on the shelf right above it. Or I can go burn some calories. That's the choice I have
0: to make every day. In case you're wondering, Nier has never burned the $100 bill, and he's no longer clinically obese. The final pre-commitment pact is even more powerful. That's the identity pact.: An identity pact is when we make some kind of
2: pre-commitment around the person we are, that behavior change is identity change. So if we can cement an identity for ourselves, then we reduce the the, the likelihood of going off track, the likelihood of getting distracted. And so this insight comes from organized religion, that if you think about, you know, a, an Orthodox Jew, does not say to themselves, oh, you know what? I really want some bacon today. Oh, that's really hard for me to resist. A devout Muslim doesn't say, oh, I'd really like a shot of whiskey right now. No, they, it's something they do not do, right? It's part of their identity. Uh, there's that joke, you know, how do you know someone's a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. And of course, you know you could substitute anything there, right? You could uh, keto or um, uh, you know uh, whatever you want. You can you can substitute Marines or um, uh, what's that um, CrossFit? You know all these folks. It's part sure. of their identity to, yep. to do, and so they tell others about it. And in fact, that's a good thing, but not for the reason you might think. You know, a lot of people think you know every why does every major religion have this idea of proselytizing? Well, of course, part of it is to, to grow the flock. But a big part of it is that telling others about your identity cements it for yourself.
0: So when you preach to others, you are enforcing an identity pact on yourself. Well, I hereby pronounce that I'm someone who does not eat French fries or donuts. I'll report back to you on how that goes. Well, Nir, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this, we, we, we're just delighted to have had you on the Next Big Idea podcast and uh, very excited for... Indistractable. Thank you very much, Rufus. It was a real pleasure. So, becoming indistractable doesn't have so much to do with cutting out technology. Although turning off the internet at 10 p.m. probably helps, it's more about making time for traction according to the values you want to live by. Tech entrepreneur and best-selling author Nir Ayal has offered us some hacks to help us out, but bottom line, there isn't really an app for that. The real change has to come from within. thoughts about Indistractable or other books in our series. Join the conversation with me, Nir Eyal, and more than 9,000 members at nextbigideaclub.com. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. Special thanks to Nir Eyal. His new book, Indistractable, is available everywhere books are sold. This episode of The Next Big Idea was written by Alex Kratowski. sound designed by David Grabowski. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producers are Emma Cortland and Michael Cobnot. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louis, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery.